Let's, before we begin, let's pray. Dear God, your grace abounds in deepest waters. We do not want simply the grace that comes in the kiddie pool. We want to be in the deepest water where your grace abounds. When we are thirsty, we don't want ice chips. We want the real thing. And we know, we know it's out there for our taking, Lord. We just pray that you give us the strength and courage to put one foot in front of the other, knowing that you will guide it. And we pray that you will take this time to make us wise in your word so that we have the strength to push ourselves into the deepest waters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to start with Luke 24, 13 to 32. Luke 24, 13 to 32. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road 
and opened the scriptures to us? If you look out here to my right, to your left, you go out far enough, you'll find Bart Bull Road. All right? Over here on the left, there's Bull Road. It's a short little lane out here. If we go straight back, well, if we go straight back, we hit the uh, septic system. We won't discuss that. Uh, that's sort of the bane of Harmony's existence. But uh, if you go past that, you'll find 84. If we keep on going, we go across the Walk Hill River. And if we go a little further, on our, our left, <laughs> just as we approach, we'll find the Orange County Park, known as Thomas Bull Memorial Park. That's roughly a mile or so from here. Emmaus and Jerusalem are seven miles apart. Seven miles, seven miles as the crow flies. My wife thinks I'm a weirdo when I use that uh, expression. Right? Seven miles straight. You might make it, you might have to go a little to the right, but you might make it to Washingtonville. You might. But you can't just go straight as the crow flies. You're going to have to take a path to get there. So what we could do, let's say there were no cars and we wanted to travel seven miles. We could come out, we could come out of the parking lot, make a left, come down to O'Hare, make a left, go down, you'd hit uh, Stony Ford Road. Take Stony Ford Road to the end, you hit 207. You make a left, then you make your right onto Egbertson. Yeah, I'm good so far, all right. It's so far so good. All right, you go down Egbertson, and that meets up with Sarah Wells Trail. You make a left on a Sarah Wells Trail, and you get all the way down until the, you hit 208, okay? All right, so that, here's the problem. If you do that, seven miles will probably get you about to the end of Sarah Wells Trail in 208. On your left is the little country deli, Okay. So, Jesus is walking with a couple of people he met along the way who were uh, distracted. And he wanted to know, what's all the kerfuffle? And they're like, haven't you heard? Don't you know what's going on? Jesus, the great prophet. Our leaders crucified him. He was our hope. We had plans. We had huge expectations. And Jesus says, well, maybe you haven't really thought this one through very well. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He says, you're foolish. Don't you know what the prophets spoke about? Haven't you understood the scriptures? Don't you know this is how it had to play out? And so he takes the time as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles, to start with Moses and go through the whole thing with them all the way, so that they would understand what's really going on. And we're going to round off and say that's probably a good two hours. He gets there, they get to Emmaus, and he says, well, he, he leaves the impression that he's going to keep going, keep on going to the next town or wherever. And they're thinking to themselves, we just walked seven miles, it's dinner time, maybe you should stay here, eat. They had a good time with the chat, they felt like they learned something, clearly. And then he breaks bread with them. And then they understand what's going on. 
then they realize what's really happening. And then they look back and they said, you know, didn't our hearts burn as he spoke? Didn't we know what was going on even before? They were dealing with this sudden realization that they were walking in the presence of Jesus. So the question today is, do you guys want to get up now and go for a walk? (laughs) Where two or more are gathered together, Jesus is with us. Seven miles, they did it. Where two or more are gathered together, Jesus is with us. That's where Bill Adams would have said yay. So you take Sarah Wells Trail. You go out this way, and you take Sarah Wells Trail. You get to the end, and you go to the little country deli. If we were to leave right now, we probably would get there for lunch. So we could eat and break bread together. And Sarah Wells, she's an interesting character herself. She was an orphan. Supposedly, her father was a pastor, and the parents, they lived in Long Island. They were uh, traveling across Long Island to New York, and they drowned, leaving her alone. So she's a young girl by herself. Christopher Den and his family, well, his wife, they didn't have any children. So they adopted Sarah Wells, but Sarah Wells kept her original name. Christopher Den had a patent, not like an invention patent, but a land patent. So he had the uh, Weiweyanda patent out here. Out Weiweyanda. Okay? And uh, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so he has this giant patent. And the thing is, at the time, you had, to, you had to occupy the land that you had a patent for because the objective of the patent was to get you to form a community, create a village and whatnot, essentially Goshen, Okay? The problem is you have to occupy the land. Someone, one of your relatives, has to occupy the land. Now, Sarah Wells, at 14, some say 16, but I believe it was 14, at 14 years old, becomes the person who's going to come occupy the land. So, no, it was not an ex-military guy. It was not a giant Dutch lumberjack. It was a 14-year-old girl who had to travel through the wilderness with Indian guides, just her and the Native Americans. That's it. Coming through the woods at a time when the woods were still the woods. All right? The wilderness was still the wilderness. There were predators, and they were real, and they were significant. And the problem also is she doesn't really know about her Indian guides. Her father picked them out. She really doesn't know about the tribes living here, who are loyal and who are rebelling or whatever. They don't know what kind of inter-politics are going on between the different Indian tribes, what kind of trouble she was going to come into. And she's a 14-year-old girl in the wilderness to occupy this land. And she does it. In about six years' time, she marries William Bull. Ah, Bull. It's all coming together. Okay? Okay? 
they have many kids together. He's a stonemason. They build the house, the stone house that's uh, on Sarewell's Trail, I believe. Um, all right. <laughs> they got confirmation. You're the Bull family. It's hard to get, it's hard to, uh, yeah, it's hard to throw a stone without running into a Bull family if you're around here. Okay. Uh, The story was always, uh, genealogy shows about 10 children. The story, there was a story, I don't know, you know, who really knows, but they said that that William Bull and Sarah Wells had 20 children. And yeah, 10 children. 12? All right, 12. 12. Okay, so 12 children. But all of them also lived long lives and had their own children, and they had very large families. Um, and, these, and the story in the book, which I don't, I'm sure it was inflated as well, was that uh, before he died, before William Bull died, he had 330 grandchildren when you added them up. Now, that may be inflated, but it's probably when Sarah died. When Sarah died. Well, that's different because Sarah was like 100 when she died. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right, there we go. Look at this. So I'm doing okay so far? This cannot be a coincidence. So, close. We're within, within the, yeah, all right. Okay, good, good. Okay, so uh, you guys are right now are wondering, is this really a sermon? Yes, it's a sermon, I promise. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, so they build these stone house, and, and one of the stories was that because they didn't have a grist mill, he had to travel with his grain to the grist mill. And one of the times he ended up suffering from exhaustion, and Sarah Wells had to go out and find him and bring him back. That's a walk. And you have to assume that God was with them for that walk. It gives you a sense of proportionality, I hope. It gives you a sense that perhaps, perhaps we as human beings are not fine china, but we are iron ore. That we can go on long walks, and as long as God is with us, God will guide and instruct us along the way. So the question is, what does worship really look like? Are we on a journey? Or is this just a place we come to do worship? Do we do worship in memory of Jesus? Or is Jesus with us as we worship. And if Jesus is with us as we worship, what kind of worship does he look for? Because he sought out these people on their walk, their seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And what is it that we are afraid of? that we maybe are not on a walk. Can we trust God? Can we walk into deeper waters knowing that God's grace abounds?
can we do that? At first, it may seem scary because you don't immediately know sometimes that person who came up to walk alongside you, who that person actually was. You would have to trust that burning in your heart. You would have to trust that God is actually walking with you. So you could say that it's like uh, those trust falls, right? You just lean back, close your eyes, and you... I'm not doing it right now, because if you noticed... (laughs) Okay. But you get the idea. You need to have a sense of proportionality before you can do that. You need to see people like Sarah Wells. You need to see that and say, you know... We've got it pretty easy today. We have it pretty comfortable today. But you also have to ask yourself, even though we have it so comfortable, would Sarah Wells trade her life for ours? Her 12 children? Her journey out into the wilderness, starting out in a log cabin? Cutting stone to build the stone house? Traveling out, having to strap your kids somewhere? To travel out and rescue your husband who's bringing home the, the grain that's been milled at the gristmill. And yet, would she trade her life for ours? I, I don't think she would. I really don't. Now, she may have traded it in this sense. She may have looked at what we have and said, you know what I could do with that? Man, what I could do with what you guys have. Look what I may do with, with what I have. So it's a long journey. But if God is walking with you, you should be all right. You'll manage. You're iron ore. You're not fine china. So let's look at Mark, chapter 7, 6 to 13. Mark chapter 7, 6 to 13. I want to thank the pastor, even though I said he wasn't preaching, for doing Deuteronomy. I was a little uh, concerned. I was like, I'm planning this sermon, and I've got no Old Testament passages. She goes, don't feel right about that. So <laughs> there you go. It's, it's covered. <laughs> All right. John, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 7, 6 to 13. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition 
that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So what had happened, the apostles were, uh, we don't like this too much, the apostles were eating and they had not washed their hands, and they were eating with their hands. Okay? Now we might talk about that in terms of a hygiene issue, but they talked about it in a matter of righteous morality. How immoral of them they have not cleansed themselves. And Jesus was like, all right, no, we're not doing this. We're just not doing this. You cannot create these ideas and these rules that then contradict what God is really after, what God really wants. What he wants is an inwardness that is right with God and then expresses itself outward, right? He's not interested in the food that you're eating. Then you make these rules, he says. It's like, oh, you have to give to the church, but you haven't even taken care of your parents, who you were supposed to take care of as one of the Ten Commandments. So there's a sense of proportionality again. So the question becomes, is it possible for us to pit ourselves against God in the name of God? Can we pit ourselves against God in the name of God? And how do we do that? What does that look like? Do we even do that? If the pastor came in someday and he says, here's what we're going to do next month. Uh, The first Sunday of that month, uh, we are going to, instead of having service today, we are going to take everyone and we are going to a church in Newburgh that uh, we want to give encouragement to who have been doing some work that uh, we really like and we want to show that we're supportive of them. How many people would be like, "I, I think I have something to do that Sunday? You know? Or maybe you'd say, yes. Yes, I can do that. And then you come back the following Sunday, and you're like, remember that day last week when we went to Newburgh and we encouraged that other church? Wasn't that cool? And then pastor comes up and he says, oh, I'm glad you liked it because we're going to do that once every month. Then what would you say? Now, I'm not saying he's planning anything like this. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's the question. Bring it on. That becomes the real question. If it is of God, then we should be eager. But then we have to, again, discover that sense of proportionality. Would we say, that sounds Corbin to me. That sounds off limits. I don't think that's right. We shouldn't be doing that. If you're still struggling with the idea of, um, should we have coffee at the entrance? Uh, Should we change pews to chairs? What do you think about putting fellowship at the back of the church one day? If you're still struggling with these things, if these are Corbin to you, there's a problem. The problem is that you haven't really understood the sense of proportionality. You are not engaged in deep waters. 
You are engaged in shallow waters. It is not a question of whether they are spiritual waters or not. It's a question of whether they are shallow waters or deep waters. And we cannot spend our Christian walk in shallow waters if we really want to experience the abundance of God's grace. But I don't want to talk about that right now because you've heard it all before. You've heard that sermon where they say, well, you know, just because you're in a garage, it doesn't make you a car, right? You know the sermon about Christianity and being a Christian and how you need to do more and you're not doing the the deeper things of God and uh, we get into fights over worship and worship styles. You've heard all these. You've heard the sermon that say you can't do that, that's not right, but we do it anyway, right? We still do it. So the question then becomes, why do we still do it? Why do we still go back to that trough? Right? Maybe it's because we haven't learned our lesson from Sarah Wells and William Ball. We lost a congregant. And I can do a sermon about how we look at our lives and God can take us at any moment. But you know, it really doesn't matter if he can take us at any moment. He is going to take us at some point. Any moment or not, our life is a vapor in the grand scheme of eternity. So the clock is ticking, folks. The clock is ticking, and you have an opportunity. Bring it on. You have an opportunity. What you have to ask yourself is which church do you want to be? One of the things I love about the Reformed tradition, we get very into the idea of grace and how you cannot earn your way into heaven. So then the question becomes, why do we do good things at all? And as Paul would say, heaven forbid, heaven forbid you even ask such a question. What are you saying, that the more bad I do, the more God's grace abounds because he's got to cover our sin, as if that's somehow a good thing? No. The difference is this. The law in the Old Testament was an obligation. For Christians today, the law is an opportunity. It brings about a spirit of eagerness. It's not a spirit necessarily of obedience. You've been freed from the law. You are now in a spirit of eagerness. That's a different way of understanding your faith. You're not doing it because you're supposed to or because you have to, but because you look at the deeper waters and you see God's grace abounding in those deeper waters and you want to live there. That's where you want to be. And I suspect, I don't know when, in the months, in a year, in two years, but I suspect we're going to see more from the pastor where he's going to start asking things. He's going to be saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do this, or we're going to do that. Or he's going to ask something personally of one of you, and I know he's done this in the past. And he's going to say, you know what we need from you? And you're going to be like, all right, let's do this. Or you're going to be like, man, that sounds Corbin to me. Okay? You need to be eager. And if you're worried, if you're thinking, I don't, 
That's like derails my whole life. You know, he wants to do what now? And I want you to think of Sarah Wells. I want you to think of these people in Emmaus. Okay? I want you to get regain a sense of proportionality. And I want you to know that you can trust God. That if you are put on a path that you're not comfortable with, if you are asked to start playing chess when all along you've been playing checkers, I want you to know, yeah, chess is tough. Yes, chess is a whole new level. Chess, chess is deeper waters. But the journey that you're on, Jesus is walking with you. And he starts from Moses, and he walks you through all the way through Moses, all the way through the prophets, and he walks you through all the way to his resurrection. And he's there with you, instructing you and guiding you and changing your sense of priorities and restructuring your sense of proportionality. He's building something in you that is actually pretty cool. But he's not building it if you're not building. Right? And you can appreciate the building. You can watch the building. You can sing about the building. You can dance around the building. You can be a critic of the building, how tall, how wide, how strong. But if you are not building the building, then he is not necessarily building very much in you. And so for me, I like sometimes, it's the, it's the uh, first Sunday after Easter, I like sometimes these little stories that are in the New Testament after the resurrection where th- the dust settles. They look boring on the surface. I did a sermon once on uh, John and Peter and the other apostles that were out fishing and Jesus comes up to them and he's like, cast your net on the other side. This is after the resurrection and everything. This is the time when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. I love those little stories where they don't seem to know what to do with their lives after Jesus is gone. They're really not sure how to respond or what to do. They're kind of like, well, we're going to walk to Emmaus now. Uh, They don't get very far and they start talking and they're probably barely walking at this point, the way it's portrayed in the Bible. And Jesus comes up to them like, what are you doing? And then they make it all the way to Emmaus. He acts as if he's going further. He's like, no, stay with us. We should have that spirit in us. This is, yeah, stay with us, Jesus. Let's, let's keep doing this. This is good. That walk we just had, that was good. That seven miles was awesome. Let's do that again. Let's walk back to Jerusalem just to do it so we can keep talking about this stuff. That burning in your hearts, that eagerness. It cannot be for the things that happen in the kiddie pool. You will get tired of it eventually. Everyone does. I love what the worship team does. It's great. But it's a manifestation of something going on within us. It is not the end goal. So if you're out there and you go, oh, I love coming to Harmony because when I sit there, I get to watch the, the praise team do an awesome job and they get me swept up in all these emotions and so many insightful words. And I, 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 You know, this is great. But it's not necessarily wrong, but you should have a sense of proportionality. Immediately your mind should go, you know, Sarah Wells doesn't care about the worship service that much. It's okay because it's an outgrowth of who we are and an outgrowth of our faith even the rocks would cry out if we don't worship, right? So that's not what I'm saying. But when you create a sense of proportionality, you see that as surface. You see God's grace in the kiddie pool. 
And if you think that's cool, if you think that's awesome, try the deep waters and see what happens. So we can remain a product of our environment. We can look at our lives and say we live in the wealthiest country in the world and we live in an easy time and so we have a lot of easy living and we can remain in this understanding that we are simply a product of our environment. Or we can put one foot in front of the other knowing that our days are numbered on this earth, giving us a sense of proportionality that even as Sarah Wells lived to be 100, she still died. So you have a brief time to put one foot in front of the other and do something. Indiana Jones, right? That chasm, right? That cliff. And he's like standing there and then he's like, and he's he's like, and the dust starts falling and the the stones start falling down the chasm and he puts his foot out and and we're all, the first time we see it, we're all watching like, and he puts his foot down on empty space and it lands on something. And he's got this, some invisible bridge and he's walking across this invisible bridge, Right? That is a great analogy of what we're talking about. All right? You have to step out into deeper things. It's a little scary. It's a little not what we're used to. We have a little trustful exercise going on here. Okay? But once you put that foot out, can you imagine being Indiana Jones? You'd be like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Do you want to feel that? Oh, this is the best thing ever? You can't do that in shallow waters. It just can't be done. I love that line. We don't know if it's true that it's actually said or anything, but I love that line from Leonidas when uh, when they're like, they have so many arrows, they will blot out the sun, and Leonidas says, then we'll fight in the shade. There is a little bit of fight that goes on in your Christian walk. You have to fight the scary things about making these changes in your life. If pastor asks something or the, or the elders ask something or you plan a new move or you're trying to get to deeper waters and there's that barrier there, there's that thing you always hit. You just don't know what it is or why it's there. You're like, no, we're just going to knock the barrier down, see what happens when we go through, and the worst that can happen is we fight in the shade. That's what we do. Because we are iron ore. We are not fine China. So I want to end. We'll end with Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three, four to thirteen. I'm not going to give you any commentary on it. We're just going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and that uh, will finish the sermon. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 4 to 13. We have confidence in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, we know you've already begun a wonderful work within us. We enjoy your hand on our soul. We enjoy this place of worship. We enjoy worshiping together. We have learned some wisdom in what it means to repent, to have fellowship with one another. We've even found it perhaps a bit therapeutic to be in each other's company and to share with each other our strengths and our weaknesses. We see huge potential, Lord, all around us. But we struggle a little bit with seizing on that potential and making it real. We need you to be active in our hearts, God. Give us courage, because it is courage that will bring us strength. It is courage that will bring us new decisions. It is courage that will activate us and allow us to be new people. We don't want to play chess anymore, Lord. I mean, checkers anymore, Lord. We want to play chess. We do not want ice chips. We want all the water. Please put us back into the deep waters, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.